good morning. How are we doing today? Good. I know that's not really a fair question sometimes to ask a large group because we're all in different places in our lives, aren't we? Um, But collectively, we are in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning, and Isaiah has one message for all of us, and it's in the first two weeks, two words of the chapter, comfort. Comfort my people, says God. Anyone here need a little comfort this morning? I uh, recently got to travel to California so I could be there for the birth of our fifth grandchild, little Violet Grace. There she is. She's so precious. But I had forgotten how much comfort newborns need as they transition from the womb to the world. (laughs) I did a lot of cuddling and rocking and bouncing and singing over those two weeks. And I'm not mad about it. It was my joy to give her that comfort. But oh my goodness, this old body needed some comfort of its own when I got home. Babies and grandmas need different kinds of comfort. We all need different kinds of comfort, don't we? We need comfort for our broken and bleeding world. We need comfort for our broken and dysfunctional relationships. We need comfort for our personal sorrows and losses, our disappointments, our fears, our regrets, our perplexities, and our pain. We need a lot of comfort in these days. And I believe that we can find it in the song Isaiah sings over us in chapter 40. You probably noticed um, that the writing style in your English Bible changed from the regular prose in chapter 39 into a pattern that lets us know we are now reading Hebrew poetry. Isaiah was a master poet as well as a prophet, and his imagery of God is breathtaking in its scope, and it's a source of deep comfort for us. It starts softly like a lullaby. And it crescendos from there as it presents the powerful ways that God comforts his people. And it ends with a reassuring promise and an invitation. So we need to listen carefully to the lyrics in order to perceive and receive God's comfort. That is my prayer for us today. But before we get into this beautiful chapter, I just want to reorient us in the book and to review just a little bit where we've been. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are often called the book of judgment because Isaiah has given, uh, God has given Isaiah a word of judgment for rebellious Israel. God would use the empires of Assyria and Babylon as instruments of judgment against his people for their sins. And then he would turn around and judge Assyria and Babylon and all the enemy nations of God and his people. Um, At the end of chapter 39, Isaiah announced to King Hezekiah that God would deliver Judea from Assyrian captivity, but they would not escape exile to Babylon. And we've learned in our previous lessons that the reasons for these exiles, these judgments, is threefold. First of all, the Israelites kept failing to trust in Yahweh alone. And as a result, they worshiped pagan idols. And three, they acted wickedly. They treated others unjustly, even shedding innocent blood. Lack of trust, idolatry, injustice. These sins had plagued God's people for generations, and ultimate judgment was expulsion from the land. However, 
alongside the promises of judgment, we have already seen glimpses, promises of God's salvation, that God would raise up someone to rescue and deliver them, the remnant, to bring them back home. It would be a second exodus, so to speak. But it's been a long time now. Chapters 40 to 66 are often referred to as the book of comfort because God has given Isaiah a new message. In Isaiah's vision in chapter Um, 40, he has looked forward to the future, and Judah is at the latter end of the Babylonian exile. And the people are discouraged, and they're wondering if God has forgotten them, if he still cares about them. They knew the exile was all their fault. They and their ancestors kept messing up. Maybe they thought their sins were piled too high. They had gone too far, and maybe God had washed his hands of them forever. Have you ever felt like God is done with you because you keep messing up? Keep repeating the same old sins over and over again? Do you ever think if I were God, I would give up on me? I've thought that a lot. Thankfully, I am not God and neither are you. God never gives up on his people. He gives Isaiah a new song to sing for Israel and it's for us too. So let's begin. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill Made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's message to those who are broken by their own sin is tender words of consolation. No matter what they've done, no matter how badly they've messed up, God is not ashamed to call them his people. Did you catch that? Comfort my people, says the Lord. He still loves them. He still cares for them. He still has a plan for them. The conflict caused by their rebellion is over. Their sin has been paid for. In fact, they had received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. How so? What what does that mean? Well, certainly the exile was God's just discipline, for Israel, but Old Testament scholar Barry Webb asked the question, and I think it's a valid one. Could 50, 60, or 70 years of exile pay for the rebellion that had gone on for scores of generations? Could it even atone, or could it alone atone, even for the sins of those directly affected, let alone for those of their ancestors? Or is there more here? Well, the more is explained later in chapter 53, where we understand that it is not the people who make the payment for their own sin, but another, a servant of Yahweh, a man of sorrows, familiar with grief, who takes our sin and punishment upon himself so that we can be healed of all our guilt and shame. That servant we know now is Jesus. The exiled Jews were called upon to believe in this particular promise of Yahweh and be comforted by it. Another voice calls out louder than the first one. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming for you, so get ready. 
In ancient times, the roads weren't paved, and in many places, there were no roads at all. So when a royal visit was expected, the people would go out in advance and clear away the rocks and debris and make a track through the desert that was smooth and level for the traveling dignitary. Was Isaiah saying here that God's people should literally go out and clear roads and make tracks, a highway that would be fit for God to travel on? Or is this poetic imagery about something else? 700 years after Isaiah's time, John the Baptist appeared in the Judean wilderness. The gospel writers identify him as the voice in Isaiah 40, whose job it was to prepare the people for the Lord's arrival. Did John start clearing the Roman roads? No. He called the people to repentance. Repentance means turning away from our sin so that we can turn back to God. And you know, the sins that we keep on repeating are the same as Israel's. Lack of trust in God alone. Idolatry. Not literally gold, silver, and wood like they had back then, but idols of the heart. Anything that we depend on other than God to deal with our guilt and to meet our deepest and daily needs for security, for comfort, for peace, and wholeness. Idols of wealth, power, control, self-sufficiency, social status. We know that our culture lifts up idols of youth and beauty as things worthy of our time and our attention and gobs of our money. (laughs) Even relationships and and careers can take on idol status if we're not careful. In this political season, we know we're tempted to put our hope in one political party or another or neither. Lack of trust in God alone, idolatry, and sometimes even injustice. Not treating others with the dignity inherent in our shared humanity. We are not so different from God's people of old. And so Jesus' first sermon to them and to us, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance is a gracious gift. It is something we get to do. Because when we confess and receive the forgiveness Jesus makes possible for us, Hebrews 2.11 says he is not ashamed to call us his people, his family, his sisters. There is no good news, no kingdom, no redemption, no new exodus from exile without the forgiveness of sins. It is our greatest comfort because with it comes everything else. May the Lord help us to perceive and receive this comfort today. But there's more. Isaiah hears another voice, and it's louder than the other two. Verse 6. A voice says, shout. I ask, what should I shout? Shout that the people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord, and so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. The second way God comforts us is by the permanence of his word. It is stable. It is reliable. It is unbreakable. It is in contrast to the transient nature of everything else, including us. I was recently with my 92-year-old mother. She's had a couple of falls, and she's been bedridden for the last few weeks. 
And we were looking at the family photos on top of the dresser across from her bed and reflecting on how the years have flown by. She has lived 92 years, and it seems like a moment to her, a breath. Our lives are fleeting. They are transient. But God's word is permanent, and it is true. It is the reality that governs our, unit, our universe and time and eternity. He will not take back any promise he has made, and no plan of his can be thwarted. If he says we're forgiven, we are. If he says he's coming back, he is. If he says he's working all things together for our good and his glory, he will. It is no mistake that in John's gospel, Jesus is called the Word. The Word that was eternal with God and was God from the beginning. The Word made flesh and dwelled among us. The Word who taught his followers, put my words into practice, he said, and your life will be stable like a house built on rock rather than shifting sand. His words are true and they offer stability. Though your world may be swirling in chaos right now, you have an anchor, the Word of God. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. We find comfort in God's forgiveness. We find comfort in the reliability of God's word. But there's more to God's comfort. Isaiah's strong, a song grows louder. Verse 9. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. I love this picture of Jerusalem personified as a herald announcing the good news of God's coming to the rest of Judah. It's the gospel in Isaiah that echoes down through the years to find its voice again in the gospels. The herald shouts, look, behold, the sovereign Lord is coming as a triumphant king and a tender shepherd. The arm that rules with power is also the arm that holds the babies close to his heart. Both images of God give us comfort. They point to a reality already and not yet fulfilled. The first image is of a victorious warrior, as the Net Bible translates verse 10. In Isaiah's vision of the future, a battle has been fought, and Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, has won. Let's read the last line of verse 10 carefully again. See, he brings his reward with him when he comes. It's all about the he. It's about the Lord's reward. In ancient times, when victorious kings and warriors would return from battle, they brought tribute and plunder that they had won with them, including the captives, the conquered peoples who would now be subject to this triumphant king. In this context... What is the Lord's reward? It is his own people. It's his flock whom he has rescued and freed from their enemies. They come limping, weak, bruised, and battered from their exile, but now God alone will rule over them. And how will he rule? 
not like other kings who demand tribute and service from their subjects. He will rule like a shepherd who watches over, protects, defends, and tenderly cares for his sheep. The idea of God as a shepherd king would not have been a new idea to the Jewish exiles. Way back in Genesis, the patriarch Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, told one of his sons right before he died that God had been his shepherd his entire life. Israel's greatest king, David, was literally a shepherd that that God took out of the pastures and uh, anointed him to shepherd his people, Israel, his sheep. It was David who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And it would be a descendant of David whom God would raise up to rescue and care for God's flock once more, like a shepherd. And we know that shepherd is Jesus. He said so in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When I was a young mother with young children, I took Isaiah 40, 11, quite literally. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. I memorized it so I could remember it when all those mother fears began to take over my heart. I would imagine my little ones in the arms of Jesus, and he would keep me right beside him. I recently read this passage to comfort my daughter who just gave birth and her fears for her newborns coupled with the postpartum hormones were wreaking havoc on her emotions. It is a visual that is both comforting and true. But we need to know that this imagery applies to all of us. Yes, we are like grass, but we are not grass to God. We are his people. We are his children. He has won our battle, paid our debt, rescued us from the power of sin and death, and set us free by his powerful arm. And though we often feel weak and vulnerable and afraid, we need to know and remember that he carries us close to his heart. I want you to see that imagery. I want you to feel it. I want you to let it comfort you like a lullaby. We find comfort in the forgiveness of our sin. We find comfort in the permanence of God's word and in the coming of God as our triumphant and tender shepherd king. Oh, but there's more. If Isaiah could be here singing to us this morning, imagine that he has just shifted to a higher octave, the orchestra begins to swell, and Isaiah begins to belt like a Broadway star. The rest of Isaiah 40 is a majestic, sweeping picture of our God. It is a reminder to the exiles and to us of things we already know, but things that we forget when times get hard. Three times Isaiah asked, do you not know? Have you not heard? And the answer is, of course we know. Of course we've heard. We just need to hear it again. That God, our all-powerful and ruling shepherd king, created all things. He knows all things. He's in control of all things, and he is sovereign over all things. We find comfort in the sovereign majesty of God. Verses 12 to 14, I'm going to read from the message now. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands? Anyone here done that? The Atlantic, maybe? The Pacific? Anyone? Anyone? 
Or who has measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Anyone? Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Isaiah is reminding us that God is the creator of all that is, and he is way bigger than we can fathom. His knowledge and wisdom are beyond our comprehension, and he is sovereign over all he's made. Isaiah goes on in verse 15. Why the nations are but a drop in the bucket, a mere smudge on the window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon, nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. And on to verses 20 to 22 to 24. God sits high above the round ball of the earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas. Yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all the princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Princes and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they are gone with the wind. Now, this isn't saying that God doesn't care about the nations, the rulers, and the people. We know that God deeply cares for all nations and all peoples. The point is that compared to the enormity, the majesty, the sovereignty of God, the nations, the rulers, and anyone else who thinks they're a big deal are only a smidge bigger than nothing. God is not intimidated by them, and he's not wringing his hand, hands wondering what their next move will be. He only has to blow on them, and they are gone with the wind. He alone is the sovereign majesty over all creation, all nations, all rulers, and all people. Now, I know this raises the age-old question of the problem of evil. If God is sovereign, why does he allow horrific atrocities like we saw in Israel last week? or any of the atrocities down through the history of the world, it is a question for which there has never been a fully satisfying answer. And yet this is part of Isaiah's message. Life is full of mysteries that we cannot fathom and questions only our all-wise God knows the answers to. We must trust him with what we can't understand, as hard as that is. And the best way I have found to do that is to look upon an even greater mystery, God hanging on a cross, taking the sin of the world into his body, suffering for it, dying for it, and rising again victoriously over sin and over the great enemy death and promising to return as judge of all evil and writer of all wrongs. This is our God. We can trust him with what we can't understand and we can find comfort in his sovereign greatness now, even as we look forward to living in his just kingdom forever, one day. But is God too great, too big, to care about little old you and me? This was Israel's core question voiced in verse 27. 
Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you ever feel invisible to God? Like you're too small or unimportant for God to notice? Does he even know or care about what you're going through? Or is he just too busy with more important issues and people? I mean, he's got kings and presidents and prime ministers and rogue regimes and terrorists to deal with, right? My problems and perplexities seem like nothing in comparison to what I can only imagine the Ukrainians, the Israelis, the innocent Palestinians are going through right now, right this moment. Do the circumstances in your life and mine merit God's attention at all? Can God see and handle everything and everyone all at once? Or does he have to do some kind of cosmic triage in order to figure out which problems get priority? Isaiah continues, verses 25 and 26. Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches out this army of stars each night, counts them off, calls them each by name, so magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one? God is vast beyond the stars and galaxies. But when you start to think that God is too big to notice you, he invites you to look up at the stars and remember that if God created each one of them, if he calls them each by name, never losing or overlooking a single one, how much truer is that of you, his child? Ray Ortland once said, God's greatness is so big, he can't overlook you. He can't not see you. Jesus said that God notices when a single sparrow falls to the ground and every hair on your head has a number. One, two. God keeps track of our sorrows, the psalmist says, and he collects our tears in his bottle. He records every one of them in his book. No one and nothing is too small for God to care about or to care for. What a comfort. There was a woman in medieval times named Julian of Norwich. Anyone heard of her? Probably not. Some of you. She was an anchoress, a holy woman, kind of like a nun, who sequestered herself for 40 years in a tiny room attached to a local cathedral in order to devote the entire rest of her life to um, God through prayer. I read her story in the book my daughter Julie wrote recently called Chronic Grace, Prayers, Saints, and Thorns That Stay. In writing about her arduous journey through long-haul COVID, Julie stumbled upon Julian's story and found it compelling because Julian had suffered greatly, and she had written about her prayers through her suffering and her struggles to understand the ways of God. Julian survived two pandemics, the Black Plague, for crying out loud, And as she lay close to death on one occasion, she had visions that she spent the rest of her life contemplating and writing about. In one of them, Jesus showed Julian a hazelnut. A hazelnut that could fit inside her palm. A little thing, she called it. Jesus simply told her in her vision, it is all that is made. 
Julian understood three things in that moment, that God made everything, that he keeps everything, and he loves everything. Everything, no matter how small it is, everything is small compared to God. And that fits perfectly with Isaiah's message as we contemplate the galaxies far away or the ocean depths and everything in between from the tiniest organisms to all the people on all the continents and all the islands in the world. It's all just a hazelnut in God's hand, which he keeps and loves. The case could be made that God especially loves and pays closest attention to the smallest, weakest things. Let's read God's invitation and final promise through Isaiah, verses 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yes, we know. Let's hear it again. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired of weary or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Anyone weary today? Could anyone use some strength? Good news. The everlasting God, our creator, never gets tired or weary. He is always at work to accomplish his loving purposes in the world and in our lives. His energy is inexhaustible. His power cannot be depleted. And he chooses to give his strength, not to those who think they are strong, but to those who know they are weak. The reality is even youths and young men in peak condition have limits and eventually, age takes its toll on everyone, does it not? Some days I feel strong. Some days I feel tired and defeated before I ever get out of bed in the morning. And I tell God, I got nothing today, Lord. And he says, I can work with that. Put your hope in me. Some translations say, wait for the Lord. Others say, trust in the Lord. Hope carries all of those ideas of patience and waiting, of expectancy and trusting, of not striking out on our own, mustering our own strength to fix something or do something about the problems or the feelings that are overwhelming us. Hope in the Lord, the everlasting God. And when you do, something will happen to you inwardly. You will gain something that nothing in the world can offer you a kind of inner strength that cannot be matched by the fittest athlete in the world. You will soar like an eagle, God says. I learned this week that eagles do their best flying in the worst storms. Apparently, the updrafts carry them higher and higher above the storms. Some days we need to, storm, uh, to soar because our problems are just that big. Other days, we just need to keep running the race of life with all its busy but ordinary rhythms of work, of rest, and daily responsibilities, looking to the Lord to give us strength for our days. And then there are days when walking is difficult, and we take one stumbling step after another. But with hope in the Lord, we're always moving forward. I'm told that these last verses in Isaiah were the favorite of my paternal grandmother, whom I called Nanny. I don't remember her very well because she died when I was about four years old. 
But Nanny suffered with rheumatoid arthritis. And without modern medicines, she was wheelchair-bound by the time she was in her 40s. Her body succumbed in her mid-50s because of all the steroids she had to take to manage the pain. And I have wondered over the years what it looked like for her to hope in the Lord, to renew her strength. From what I can gather about her, hope for her was a daily choice. And by it, she had the inner strength that she needed to endure the pain and the limitations of her body. To keep going in her faith and not give up. And yes, of course, it meant looking forward with expectation to the day when she would be with Jesus in a new body, free at last to literally soar, run, and walk. I can hardly wait to see her again in my new body. God has a lot of comfort for us today if we will perceive it and receive it. Comfort in his forgiveness, comfort in his word, comfort in the promise of God's coming to reign as our shepherd king, comfort in his sovereignty over the great and the small, and comfort in his strength for our weariness. What kind of comfort do you need today? Put your hope in God. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others with the comfort we have received from you. Will you, by your Spirit, help us to more fully comprehend the comfort that is ours? And will you open our hearts to receive it, to live in it, to be strengthened by it, and will you use us to comfort others as well? We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus and for the glory of his name. Amen.